0: Man, well, we are continuing in the study of Revelation, the first three chapters. We're going to look at seven letters to the seven churches. And so, if you were not able to uh, hear the introductory message to this series, I would encourage you to go on our Facebook page, go on our, our, our website, you follow links to our YouTube page, um, and watch that message. And really, what, what, what happened there when we went uh, to this introduction, we looked at we looked at how God gave John this, the revelation of the book of Revelation. And we, we saw this vision of the resurrected Christ as he is walking amongst his church. And we, we, we saw who Christ is amongst his church. And how he has come He's come to be with us in the middle of all the things that we walk through. He's come to be with us to, to, to look at us with eyes like flaming fire and hair as white as wool. To come and bring sanctification and purity to his church, and we saw him as, as a high priest, our great high priest, with a, a robe and a golden sash, and he intercedes for us and prays for us. And then now, as we're going to jump into the first letter of the first church, we're going to look at, at what he has to say to the churches. And so before we jump in, would you pray with me before we jump into God's Word? Father, we come before you this morning and we ask, God, that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, it is not a man that we need to hear today. It's not a man that we need to hear. It is your voice that we need to hear. And we know that you have spoken to us most clearly through your word. And, Lord, I pray that, that you would speak to us as we look at your, at your word here today. And I pray that your people here today would have an open heart, open mind to be able to receive what it is that you would say to them that they would apply it to their lives we would all apply your word to our lives so that we can become more like christ lord i pray that you would help me to open my mouth to preach your word and to exalt christ i pray this in jesus name amen faithfulness is the commitment that every church must embrace faithfulness that's our commitment We must be faithful. And faithfulness as a church is lived out in the individual lives of those who make up a church. So so your call, the commitment that you must embrace, that I must embrace, is a commitment to faithfulness. We must be faithful in what God has called us to be as believers in Jesus Christ. We must walk in faithfulness. That is the commitment. And that is the question that will be asked, that we will look at. Week after week, over the next seven weeks, this week and six more weeks, as we look at each church, it's the question of faithfulness. Will we, as individual Christians, and will we as a church remain faithful? What does it mean to be faithful? It means to be consistent. It means to be steady. It means to not waver. It means that as Christians, as individual Christians, but as a church, that we believe the truths of Scripture, and the message of the gospel, and we do not waver. And we, don't, we do not waver or we do not go with the winds of the culture as, as the culture opposes the gospel and opposes the truth of Scripture, that we remain steadfast and faithful. That is the test of every Christian, and that is the test of every church, and this is what we will see over and over again with each of these letters to each of these churches. Will they be faithful? And so the question would be, is is why is it important to ask the question of why will we be faithful? Because I believe that we're living in a post-Christian culture. And we are living in the middle of an increasingly intolerant and hostile culture towards biblical Christian ethics. And the question will always be, as Christians living in a pagan society, in a society That has thrown off or wants to throw off and continues to throw off any objective standard of morality, the question will always be, will always remain, as long as the Lord tarries, the question will always remain is will we be faithful? Is will we be faithful to the truth? Will we remain steadfast or will we compromise? Will we compromise our convictions? Will we compromise our, our, our morals? Will we compromise our belief in the sufficiency of God's word? Will we be faithful? So why does it matter that we hold the line when it comes to what scripture reveals about humanity, about sin, salvation, marriage, gender, sexuality, the exclusivity of the gospel? Why does that matter that we Hold the line on the truth of God's word about all of these matters that we're facing in our world today. Why does it matter? This is why it matters. To the degree in which we stay faithful to biblical truth will be the degree to which we will see lasting gospel impact in our lives and communities. They are directly connected. If we are unfaithful the word of God we will not see lasting gospel impact period there may be impact but it will not be gospel impact you can look at churches and it may look like they have impact but the question you should ask is is it true gospel impact if there is compromise of biblical truth then it is not it is not gospel impact it's another kind of impact True gospel impact is directly related to biblical fidelity. True gospel impact is directly related to biblical fidelity. And it seems like every day when you read the news, every day when you look on social media, every day you hear stories of Christians or pastors or churches going the way of compromise. Going the way of compromise. Compromising convictions that certain... A certain denomination held for hundreds of years. Compromising convictions on the truth of God's word. You hear it every day. You hear Christians. They're deconstructing now. Popular Christians. Famous Christians and pastors and, and churches, they're deconstructing their faith. They're, they're, they're going to the Bible and they're, they're doing what happened in the in Enlightenment age, in the, in the Enlightenment period, and they're, they're going to the scriptures and they're thinking through a critical lens and they're, they're, they're looking at, well, this is what I believed all of my life, but now I don't really know if I believe this. And they're throwing off their faith, they're abandoning their commitments. So the question remains is, will we be faithful? And faithfulness as a church is connected to our faithfulness as individual Christians. So if we go the way of compromise, and if we lower the biblical standard for reasons of accommodation, we will lose our influence for the kingdom of God. We will lose our influence for the kingdom of God. And this is the core of what this book, of what this section in Revelation is all about. It's all about... Influence for the kingdom of God. This is why God has placed us on planet Earth as a church. We are the church. uh, of We we are living word churches represented uh, in in Homa and in Schriever and in Berg and in Thibodeau and and down the bayou and Morgan City and wherever, wherever you are coming from. And the kingdom of God needs to be established in all of these areas. And this is why God places Christians in, com- in, in families and in communities so that the light of the gospel can shine through our lives into the community to make an impact into the culture. This is why we're here. So people can be born again. And so th- this is the test. It is a test of faithfulness. That is the test that we must return to in our personal lives and in our corporate lives. Is representing Living Word Church. So the question is, will we be faithful? And so we're going to look at all of these churches. So we will look at the first church here today. It is a letter to the church at Ephesus. A letter to the church at Ephesus. Would Ephesus be faithful? That's the question. Will these other churches be faithful? And just by way of reminder, these are seven letters to seven Literal churches. These are not just hypothetical churches. These were literal churches that were alive uh, in Asia Minor after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these are literal, literal churches where the Lord spoke to John and sent these letters to the pastors, the elders, the, 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 the leaders of each of these local churches to give a message to them from the Lord of the church. And the first one is Ephesus. So let's turn our attention to the first church addressed In this revelation. The church at Ephesus. So what do we know? We got to do a little background before I dive into the text in revelation. But what do we know about Ephesus? So this church dwelled in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the most important city in Asia Minor. It was the most important city in Asia Minor. And why was it the most important city? Because history tells us that the Roman governor dwelled in Ephesus. So this was a very prominent city in Asia Minor. A very prominent city. And, and, and I've got a map here that I'd like to show you. To give you a, a little idea of where uh, Ephesus is. And these are all the locations of the seven churches that we're going to study. And so if you see, Ephesus is located in modern day Turkey. And Ephesus is right there off the coast. Right off the coast. And you really can't see it on this map. Because it's not a broad enough of, of a picture. But if you go out. And it actually may be broad enough. But it's not, it's not labeled. But the island... Where John was, whenever he wrote this revelation, uh, if I had a a pointer, I believe it's somewhere around here. It's somewhere around here. This is where he would have been. Just off the coast. 50 or so miles off the coast of Turkey. Off the coast of Asia Minor. And so Ephesus was a port city. It was was believed that the population was around 250 to 500,000 people in Ephesus. And that is a large city. That's a large city during those times. And so this is a very bustling, uh, happening city. It's on a port. There's a lot of goods and commerce that came through Ephesus. So it was a very wealthy city. So you're thinking about a very wealthy city with a lot of people, big population off the coast, a lot of commerce coming through. And so this is a very important city. Ephesus also was known for its yearly athletic games. They were called the great games, the great games. And these great games were very similar to what we would call the Olympic games. And so, there were, so, so sports and af- athletics were very important during that time. But what was most famous about Ephesus was the worship of the goddess Artemis. The goddess Ar- Artemis, or otherwise known as Diana. Artemis would be a male name. Diana was the female name, but... The goddess went by both names. And this is why. Gender fluidity was something that they praised during that time. Isn't that interesting? History kind of does what? It kind of repeats itself. When we throw off God, we throw off restraint. We don't want his morals and his laws. Right? So it was Artemis, but it was Diana. It was a very, Gender flu, fluidity was a common practice that was represented in their most prominent idol, the goddess Diana. And she had this temp- they built this temple for this goddess Diana. And I won't even describe what the idol itself looked like. It was grotesque and it was immoral and it was sexual. And the, the primary function of this goddess was that they would worship on the altar of sexuality and on, and on, and on sex. And they would have a month-long festival every year to worship the goddess Diana. And it, it was just a month-long of debauchery focused on drunkenness and sex for a month every year. And this is the core of what Ephesus was about. And this, this goddess, this, this temple that was made, built for this goddess Diana, it stood as one of the ancient wonders of the world, of the ancient seven wonders of the world. And the worship of Diana was extremely immoral, and it was filled with temple prostitutes in a month-long festival every year centered on drunkenness and sex. And in the middle of all of that stood a church. In the middle of all of that pagan society stood a church, stood Christians. In the middle of paganness and immorality and and, and immoral sexuality, in the middle of of gender fluidity, in the middle of people wanting to worship a God of their own making, in the middle of that society stood Christians. And I want to tell you that Christians throughout society, throughout history, have always dwelled in societies like that. What we're facing right now is nothing new. This is not a new reality. Christians have always lived in the middle of societies that have thrown off restraint, that go their own way, and want to make gods unto themselves. So in the middle of all of that is a church, is a group of Christians that are living in Ephesus. So what do we know about the church? So that's the city. What about the church? Well, the church of Ephesus, we we see in the book of Acts, that the birth of this church is recorded in Acts 18, verses 18 through 19. Priscilla and Aquila get born again. And then Paul makes one of his missionary journeys to Ephesus and he meets them and he meets Priscilla and Aquila. And he goes to their household and and he says, have you you come to be baptized in the name of Jesus? Have you come to see the baptism of Jesus? And he says, we don't know anything about the baptism of Jesus. And so he preaches the gospel and they get baptized and the church is birthed. And then we see a large riot break out. Paul is there and he's ministering for three years. He's there in Ephesus ministering, getting his church on its feet. And we see a large riot that broke out because of the idol-making industry that was hit hard because of the impact of the gospel. We, you, you'll see that in Acts 19. D- D- Demetrius the coppersmith, one of the local coppersmiths who would cr- build these idols for the worship of Diana and all the other false gods. The gospel made an impact into that industry. And so this, this coppersmith was upset and was angry and started a riot. And this is the, kind of the heart of what's happening in the birth of this church. They're not just coming into town privately, secretly. We're just going to kind of not make waves in this pagan society. No, they're coming in and the gospel is spreading because the gospel can't be stopped wherever it goes. And it's making waves in society. You know, what's beautiful about uh, studying Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, is that we have so much scripture in the New Testament that was written to this church. You have the admonition to the pastors or the elders of, of this church in Acts chapter 20. We're going to read a section of that later on in this sermon. You also have an admonition to the Ephesian pastor, Timothy, in First and Second Timothy. So you have Paul planting this church, raising up Timothy, sending Timothy. And we have two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, the young pastor of the church at Ephesus. Such great resources as we study the church at Ephesus. Then you have one of Paul's greatest letters that he wrote, the, the letter to the Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. And then we have a letter to the Ephesian church 40 years after its founding from John's revelation. And this is the letter we're going to look at. So I want you to get this 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, after the founding of this church, 40 years is whenever this letter hits John's eyes and ears and gets to this church in Ephesus. So now let's look at the letter. And this letter will be broken down. This section, seven verses, will be broken down like this. Four sections. The strong start, the slow fade, the threefold call, and the judgment realized. The strong start, the slow fade, the threefold call, and the judgment realized. Let's look at the strong start. The strong start. Revelation 2, verses 1 through 3 and verse 6. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among... The seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name'sake, and you've not grown weary. Yet this you have you hate the work of the, Nic- of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So, this church, birthed 40 years before this letter, had a strong start. The church was birthed in a dramatic fashion. Do you remember the section I talked to you about, the riot? Look at what it says in Acts 19 about this riot that took place because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says in Acts 19, about this time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. What is the way? What's the way that, 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 that Luke is writing about in, in Acts 19? The Christians. That's what Christianity was called. Now we're called Christians well, it used to be called, Christianity was called the way. Notice what it says there. About this time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Are we making a, di- a disturbance in our society because of the gospel? Or do we just kind of blend in wherever we are? Do people know a difference in our life? Can they tell a difference between us and them? I'm Christians, they're not Christians. I'm a Christian, I'm this, I'm that, right? Are we making any disturbance in our society? Is our society disturbed? So people say, well, we don't want to disturb the society. Oh, yes, we do. They need to be disturbed. Why? They need to be disturbed out of their stupor because the reality of heaven and hell is in the balance. Right? I just love, I love what Scripture says here. About this time there arose no little disturbance. So it means it was a pretty big one, right? For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. I mean, he brought a lot of business. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, that this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Hello, right? And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Isn't that crazy? So what did Paul come in and do? He said, hey, it's a false God. You built it with your hands. It's not real. And so now this Demetrius, the coppersmith, is saying, hey, wait a minute. These people are getting saved. They're getting born again. They're realizing that they were worshiping wood. They're they're realizing they're worshiping rock and stone. And they're realizing that the God of creation is not a God of stone and rock and wood. But he's he's the God of all of creation. He is spirit and he is truth. And they got born again. They heard the gospel and And a big disturbance was taking place. And it says that this disturbance became so great that Demetrius created such a stir. It says he drew such a crowd that thousands of people gathered around in the open square and they began to chant, Great is the goddess Diana! Great is the goddess Diana for two hours. Read the story, Acts 19. Go read that story, it's a compelling story. For two hours, great is the goddess Diana. A great disturbance made into the city. This is the church at Ephesus. This is what is taking place. And the Lord is coming. And the Lord is going to affirm the good things that are taking place. The gospel is clearly making an impact. Is it not? It's clearly making an impact in the city of Ephesus. And the Lord begins. And what we just read. He was commending them over and over again. He's saying, you're doing this well. And you're doing this well. And you're staying faithful. And you're enduring So what what, what did he say? Listen to what the Lord praises about this church in Ephesus. He says, I know your works and your toil. I know your works and your toil. That word toil here in this section of Revelation is translated to mean work to the point of exhaustion. Work to the point of exhaustion. So the Lord of the church is looking at the church at Ephesus and he's saying, I know your works. I know you toil. You're not lazy Christians. You're not, you're, you're not pew sitters. You don't just come to hear a message and, and, and be entertained. But you're hard working. You work for the gospel to the point of exhaustion. How powerful is that? How often is it that even we as Christians today that we can, we can slip into the mode of just being pew sitters? Right? Just sitting down and watching a pastor preach or, or watching our favorite YouTube preacher or, or listening to our Christian music, going to our Christian concerts. And, and we just kind of sit on the background, but not, 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 not this church. The Lord of the church looks at this church and says, no, I know your works and I know your toil. You are working and you are toiling to the point of exhaustion. You're not in it for yourself. You're not in it to, to just be entertained or hear a good message. You are in it because you know that the gospel of the kingdom must be advanced. And that, that, must, and that there must be no little disturbance, but a great disturbance into the society with which I've called you. Hard-working church. Hard-working church. It's not this what we should strive towards as believers. And we be hard-working. We work hard for the gospel. Do we work hard for the gospel or are we just pew warmers? Are we active believers in the work of the kingdom? Are we content to just live cultural Christian lives? Lord, the church looks at this church and says, no, you're not cultural Christians. You're hardworking Christians, even to the point of exhaustion. It's the next thing he says about this church. He says, I know your patient endurance. I know your works and your toil, and I know your patient endurance. Endurance is translated here to mean patience under trying circumstances, or patience in trying circumstances. So what, what were the circumstances of this church? They were hard-working Christians for the gospel. But you know how hard it was to work hard for the gospel in their circumstances? They were in the middle of persecution. They were in the middle of a, of, of, of a time and a place where the, the way was was profaned, where the way was vocally and actively pushed against. They were under persecution where it was for the fear of their life that they would stand for the faith and the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what does the Lord of the church tell this church? He tells them, he says, you're hardworking to the point of exhaustion. I know your works. I know your toil. He says, I know your patient endurance. I know that you are enduring under trial. Do we endure under trial? Is this, not, is this not what we want in our life? That we would work hard for the gospel. That we would not be lazy Christians, pew sitting Christians, but that we would toil for the gospel and that we would endure under trial. The point is this. They were remaining faithful to the Lord in all circumstances. Is that your desire? It's my desire. My desire for you, for all of us. What else did the Lord commend of this church? He says, I know your works, you're hardworking, you're... You told to the point of exhaustion, you you have patient endurance under all circumstances. And now he says, you cannot bear with those who are evil. What does that mean? It means that the church had a sensitivity towards sin and a love of righteousness. Man, what a church. Hard working, toiling for the gospel, patiently enduring under trials. And they could not bear with those that were evil. That means that they did not have a tolerance for sin. Oh, may we be a church that doesn't tolerate sin, not only in our personal lives, but corporately. May we look at the evil and the sin of the world and may we hate sin and love righteousness. What a church. What a church. What a commendation. Paul had admonished them in Ephesians 4. This church, he had admonished them in Ephesians 4 to not give an opportunity to the devil. And they were faithful to that call. They could not bear with those who are evil. They could not bear with sin and unrighteousness. They wanted to live lives of holiness. What was the next thing that we see that the Lord praised about this church? He said, You have tested those who called themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. Or some translations say liars. You've tested those who called themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. This church, in short, what this means is this church walked in discernment. This church walked in discernment. Do you remember the message I preached a few weeks back called destructive heresies? And I talked about the greatest implication of all of this is that we would walk in discernment. That was this church. They looked at people who said, hey, I'm apostle so-and-so, I'm prophet so-and-so, and and, and I'm telling you a different way, and here's a better way, and and listen to my message, and and my message might not be about Christ, but this is the way, and they looked at them, and they said, no, they're false. They're false. They walked in discernment. They were willing to say that this is right, and this is wrong. This is truth, and this is error. They're willing to say, no, that's a liar. They're lying. They're blaspheming God. What a, what a church. Look what Paul, Paul had admonished the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Look what he told them. And they didn't forget. Listen to this. This is the same church just walking in discernment. Paul told them this. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves will arise, men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be the church was alert. The church was, church was discerning. Why? Because the elders heeded the call of Paul the Apostle. They were, and the Lord saw it. He says, I know your works. You work to the point of exhaustion. You are patiently enduring. You don't like evil. You can't stand evil. You, you reject sin. You love righteousness. And you walk in discernment. What's he saying there? He's saying you have right doctrine. You care about doctrine. Doctrinal truth matters, right? This is this church. He says to them, I know that you care about it and I'm commending you for it. What a church. Hard working. Gospel pursuits were a priority. Passionate about Christ and it showed in their lives. Not growing weary, but faithfully enduring under trials. Trusting God in all circumstances, pre-IDA and post-IDA, right? Trusting God always. No tolerance for sin in their lives. And no joining themselves to those who do. They were a people of discernment. A people who believed that truth matters. A church that cared deeply about gospel clarity in the middle of a culture of idols. Think about that. A church that cared deeply about biblical truth in the middle of a culture that worships many false idols. Man, if the letter stopped here, we could rightfully say that this would be the complete model for churches of all generations. We could say, this is it. You want to know what a church should look like? You want to know how a church should function? Look at the church at Ephesus. Ephesus. They worked hard. They were patiently enduring. They were faithful to God. They shunned evil and they, they, they loved righteousness. They cared about truth and rejected error. They called out false teachers and they cared about right doctrine. This is a church of all churches. But unfortunately, the Lord of the church has not done writing. And the strong start switches to a slow faith. Look at look at the slow fade. We move from the strong start to the slow fade. Look back at the text in Revelation 2. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Wow. But I have this against you. Think about the weight of those words. Can you ever imagine in your life as a believer the Lord of the church coming to you and saying, I have this against you. Imagine how that would feel. I have this. There's something in me that is against you because of how you are living and what you are doing. I mean, that is just so profound. What a statement. The Lord of the church has something against this church. You remember I talked about last week in 1 Peter that judgment must begin where? At the household of God. There are times when the Lord of the church with eyes flaming like fire, as we looked at last week, and, and feet as burnished bronze, which, which represent judgment. There are times when the Lord of the church walks into his church and he's bringing judgment and clarity. He's looking at the lives of the people in the church and he's recognizing sin and disobedience and rebellion and compromise. I have this against you. And what, what did he have against them? You have abandoned the love you had at first so how does that happen how do you go from working hard to the point of it, point of ex- exhaustion enduring faithfully not tolerating evil or sin calling out false doctrine and error caring deeply about right doctrine and you abandon the love for Christ that you had at first how does that happen it's a slow fade doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen all of a sudden. It's a slow fade. It's month after month. It's year after year, day after day, month after month, year after year. It's a slow fade where you begin to lose the white, hot, passionate love you have for Christ. The church had turned from white, hot love for Christ to cold, mechanical orthodoxy. Yes, they could look at the truth and they could say that this was true and this was not true. They could, they could recognize it. They could call it out. But, but even in all of their understanding of truth and right beliefs, their heart had grown cold. Their heart had grown cold. Their love for Christ had grown cold. They had right doctrine. They didn't tolerate false teachers or teaching. They hated sin and would not partner with sinners. They were faithful under trials. But they slowly began to forget why they were so Passionate and faithful. They abandoned the love they had at first. Supreme love for Christ had been replaced with good Christian works, good Christian doctrine. Living a good Christian life. Yeah, I I I know I don't need the foundations class anymore. I don't need need to go back and and learn that anymore. I don't need to keep studying. I don't need to know anything. I don't need to keep studying and know anything new. I don't need to to, to dive into the the depth of who Christ is in his word, right? Complacency leads to a slow fade and a drifting and a shifting from a hot, white, hot love for Christ to a cold, mechanical love. Orthodoxy, where we go to church just because we go to church. We read the Bible just because we're supposed to read the Bible. We pay our tithes, we give money to charities, we buy coffee to spread the gospel everywhere just because we, that's what you're supposed to do. You're a Christian, right? And it's not the love we had at first. The commitment and love for Christ to turned to boxes to check and doctrines to affirm and protect. And they had lost the love. This doesn't happen overnight, and it never does. And it reminds me of the conversation Jesus had with Simon Peter in John 21. Do you know Simon Peter? If you ever study the Gospels, you know Simon Peter is just like us, is he not? Always talking. And always saying things he shouldn't say. And doing things he should not do. Just like, just like us, Lord, help us all. I just get to have a microphone. Y'all get to hear me every now and then do that. Lord, help us. What was it that Jesus asked Peter after he rejected the Lord? You remember the Garden of Gethsemane? He says, look, I'm never going to abandon you. I'm never going to leave you. Jesus gets arrested and he's he's getting, he's, he's under trial. He's about to head to crucifixion and Peter fails the test. The Lord says, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. He does it. He denies. Jesus is crucified and he's raised from the dead. And you see in John 21, go read John 21, such a beautiful section. And Jesus comes and finds Peter. Peter had abandoned. He'd abandoned. He'd gone back to fishing. What was the question that Peter, that Jesus asked Peter when he came back? Did he say, Peter, Peter, are you willing to fight for me? Jesus didn't ask him that question. Why did not Jesus ask that question to Peter? Because Jesus knew the answer. Peter was willing to fight, was he not? What did he do when when one of the soldiers named Malchus came and tried to arrest Jesus? Peter took his little little handy sword he had in in his pants and he pulled it out. And he went to cut off the head of the soldier, but he got his ear instead. Jesus was not concerned that Peter was willing to fight. Did he ask Peter? Peter? Do you believe correctly about me? No, he didn't. Why did Jesus know that Peter believed correctly about Jesus? What does Matthew 16 say? Jesus asked the question, Who do do people say that the Son of Man is? Who was it that spoke up and got it right? Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus knew that Peter understood who he was. What was the question that Jesus asked Peter? He said, do you love me? Not will you fight for me? Not do you have right doctrine? Not, do you, not, not, not will you fight for me and stand for me? And not will you believe correctly about me, though those are important? He says, but the most important thing is, Peter, is do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter had right doctrine. You're the Christ. He was willing to stand and fight till the pressure was too intense. But at the end, it always is. In the Christian life, and this church at Ephesus, and the church in Shriver, Living Word Church, it always comes back to the same question that the Lord asked Simon Peter. is the same question he asked us. He says, do you love me? Do you love me? Have you abandoned the love you had at first? The strong start turns into a slow fade towards a mechanical religious commitment. And now we turn to the threefold call. The threefold call. Look back at Revelation 2, 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Three calls. Lord of the church says, church at Ephesus, you're hardworking. You got right doctrine. You hate evil. You love righteousness. But I have this against you. You've lost the love you've had at first. And he says three things. Remember, repent, and return. Remember, repent, and return. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, you were here and you fell. Repent and return to where you were. You were here, white-hot love for Christ passionately pursuing him and working hard for him and loving the gospel and hating evil and preaching the gospel everywhere you went telling everybody about the love of jesus it was some of you when you first got saved you people could not shut you up oh when you would walk in the room people would say oh no oh not that person oh no i'm gonna hear about jesus again you were there but now you're here repent jesus says and return Return a threefold plea from the Lord of the church to a people who have forgotten why they work hard for the gospel. Who have forgotten why they stand so strongly against false doctrine and sin. A church that has forgotten must remember. The threefold call starts with remembering. Remembering what? Remembering why do we love Christ? Remembering, why do we love Christ? Why do you love Christ? It's a great question. A question that I think we should ask ourselves very often. We should ponder why is it that I even love Christ? Is it because of you? Do you love Christ because you did something to start loving Christ? Is that why you love Christ? Do you love Christ because because you became religious and you started attending church and you started checking some boxes of religious activity? Is that why you love Christ? You developed this love for Christ that just kept developing over and over again and now you love Christ greatly. Is that why we love Christ? No. Why do we love Christ? 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the satisfaction for the penalty of our sins. (laughs) Why do we love Christ? Because he loved us first. Why do we love Jesus? Because he loved us first. Who were we before Christ set his love on us? Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of the world, following the pagan idolatry of the world, worshipping the idols made of stone and, 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 and uh, rock and, and metal, worshipping the idols made of smartphones and, and TV and sports and entertainment. We were following the course of the world, following the, the idols of money and possessions and sexuality and pleasures. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, what? John three sixteen. But God, for God so loved the world. Did we love Him? No, we were enemies of the cross. We wanted nothing to do with Him. But God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17 of this scripture is so important. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. When God, listen, when God sends his son in the end, as we read in the back of the book, when he sends him again, it is to bring judgment. But when he sends him on the front end, it's to bring salvation. So that people can escape the judgment that is coming. We don't love because. There's something inherently good in us to love God. We love God because he looked down on us when we wanted nothing to do with him and he set his love on us. Remember, first step, you lost your first love. You abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, remember who you were. It's a good exercise. Think back. I remember I remember when we first got married, there's things that we would, you know, our first house, things that we would not be able to afford to buy or, or places that we, you know, houses that we lived in, apartments. I remember thinking back to the rent that we had in our first apartment. It was $475 a month. Can you, where, where could you live right now for 475 a month? Not, I mean, some places, but, it was, you know, like, remember where you were. And what does it do? It causes you to be grateful for where you are it's what happens when our love grows cold is because we forgot that we really did deserve a lot of the things that were coming to us all of the things that were coming to us we deserved it all but God was so merciful to us remember the addictions remember the sin remember the hatred of God remember the the anger the unforgiveness remember all those things building up in your heart And the gospel breaks through into your life. Your eyes are open and you see Christ in his beauty and his majesty. And your heart is filled with love. And there's nothing that you could do but surrender to that. And so you said yes to Christ. Yes. Yes. I believe in my heart. I confess with my mouth. That you are Christ. You are God. That you were raised from the dead. And Romans 10 says that you'll be born again. Remember. And then what's next? Repent. What does it mean to repent? Repentance means to turn around. You ever been going one direction and you turn around to go the opposite direction? You know what you're doing when you do that? You're repenting of where you were going. Husbands, you need to do a lot of repenting, right? Your wife tells you you need to repent. You're going the wrong way. And you're like, no, I know where I'm going. And she says, no, I've got the GPS. I've got the standard here. I got the GPS. And it's saying you're going the wrong way. You need to repent, brother. Turn around. Go the other direction. Right? You ever heard the phrase in sports, stop the bleeding? Oh, this is out of control, right? Man, somebody needs to stop the bleeding. That's what repentance is. Stop the bleeding. You're bleeding out. Stop the bleeding. Return, repent. Go the other direction. Remember. Repent. And then return. And then return. What does it mean to do, to return. It means to this. this is what the text says, to do the works you did at first. To do the works you did at first. What were the works you did when you first fell in love with the work that Christ did for you on the cross? What were the works you did at first? I remember the works I did at first when I met my wife. You remember the works you did at first? Let's make that practical. What were the works you did at first when you met your spouse? When you were trying to convince them to let you love them? That's what dating is, right? courting, dating, trying to convince them to let me love you forever. I did some crazy stuff. I remember one time uh, uh, Estelle went to Pennsylvania for 21 days. 21 days she's gone. I mean, we're like, we're just in the middle of dating. I love this woman. She leaves me for 21 days. I had the brilliant, and it was a brilliant idea. It was a brilliant idea to take a picture in 21 places where we would frequent on our dates. Or where we would frequently be together. So, I, And this is, I didn't have a smartphone back then. This is before the iPhone came out. Because the iPhone came out in 05, 06 or something like that. This was in 2001 or two, And so I had a, a disposable camera. <laughs> and I went to Barnes and Noble. It's not even open now in New Orleans. And I got some random person to take a picture of me standing in the entrance of the door. And then I, then, and then I got somebody to take a picture of me at church with a seat next to me empty looking all lonely. <laughs> I, see, I had somebody take a picture of me. Whenever I would go eat at Popeye's and Estelle would come eat with me at Popeye's and had somebody take a picture, just a random stranger. Hey, take a picture of me by myself here at Popeye's. <laughs> and I took all of those pictures, 21 pictures, and I got a photo album. Got a photo album. And I labeled each of those pictures and put them in there. And I called them 21 Miss You Days. And I know, I know. <laughs> I know. So it's really good. Her dad, her, dad got, her dad got jealous because he would work 21 and 10. And so he's like, you never did anything like that for me when I was gone. What, 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 what are the things you do? What would what, what you do? Return to that. I mean, this is in your marriage even. Has the love grown cold? Husbands, wives, when was the last time you communicated to your spouse the way you did when you first met them? When you first fell in love, the things, the little notes, the post-it notes you'd stick on the mirror, the lipstick you'd take and write on the windshield, all the silly little things you do. Remember, repent, and return. Return to the details. Return to the diligence. Return to the passionate love you had at first. And that begins with remembering. That begins with remembering. The strong start and the slow fade led to the threefold call, and finally this morning, the judgment realized. The judgment realized. Look back at Revelation 2 5. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Wow. You ever been threatened by somebody? You know what if not means? That's like, you don't do this, this is happening. That's called a threat. You've been threatened by somebody and been scared. How about getting threatened by the Lord of the universe? That's pretty heavy. If not, remember, repent, return. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That this coming of the Lord is not a good coming. We're we're waiting for the coming of the Lord, are we not? We want the Lord to come. But this coming, this threat that he gives to this church at Ephesus, he's saying, if you don't remember, if you don't remember where you have fallen and repent and return, I will come and I will remove your lampstand. What is the lampstand that he is threatening to remove? In the vision of the Lord of the church in the first few verses we looked at last week, the lampstand represented the seven churches of these letters that he's writing to. So the lampstand means that they would stop being a church. He was going to remove the lampstand from among their midst. It means that his presence and his power and his blessing would be removed from their midst. I will come and remove your lampstand from among your midst. The Lord of the church with hair like wool and eyes like fire and feet like bronze is threatening to come and judge this church if they do not repent. And that judgment looks like I will remove your lampstand from its place. So the question is what happened to the church at, at Ephesus? Did they heed the call? Did they, did they heed the call? We see the warnings and admonitions to the church in Ephesus. We see them, in, as I read, in Acts 20 and to the, the pastor Timothy in 1st and 2nd Timothy. But as it was in other churches after the resurrection, it was the same in the, the church at Ephesus. False teachers crept in. False teachers creep into churches. False messages creep in. And it's it's obvious because of what we know in history that the church at Ephesus failed to deal with it. And a genuine love for Christ, that genuine love for Christ that can only be strengthened when it stays unmixed from the world and unmixed from Satan and his lies, that love grew cold because it was mixed with lies and untruth and error. And so what we know in history is that the church in Ephesus used to be the strongest church in Asia Minor. And now, modern-day Turkey, there are hardly even any Christians to be found in all of Asia Minor. The city of Ephesus is just a city of ruins. People come and study history and look at the ruins of that time. Turkey is 99.8% Muslim, leaving only 0.2% as Christian. And even this 0.2% is in rapid decline. Because of the persecution of, of Islam there. So, the judgment realized. The judgment was realized. The church was destroyed. The gospel light was removed from that area. And there's only, there's, only a few, if, there's only a few faithful that even might remain there. The judgment realized. If a nation, and here's how it meets us in our world here today. If a nation is filled with churches that are unfaithful to their call to be salt and light then that nation will go the way of Ephesus. That nation will go the way of Ephesus. A nation of ruins. A nation that people come and look at. A city and nations that people come and look at and say, do you remember when? They were a great nation. Lots of commerce. Lots of money. Lots of wealth. Lots of power. Parading their power and their wealth and their money for all the world to see. But if a nation, if that type of nation is filled with churches that are unfaithful to their call, God will remove the lampstand from those churches and the nation will go the way of Ephesus and become ruins. That's why we must be faithful. We must be faithful. Faithful for the name and the sake of Christ, but faithful for the sake of the nation that they may hear the gospel. Will we remain faithful? This will be the question we will seek to answer as we look at each of the letters. Will we be faithful to protect our love for the Lord by not allowing any compromise into our lives and our church? Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 24. Jesus says this, And they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and, and then many will fall away. And betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony. And then the end will come. You see the pattern? Wickedness, lawlessness, love grows cold. Listen, listen, wickedness, lawlessness, love grows cold. So how do we protect our love for the Lord? By being like the Ephesian church in the beginning before the slow fade. That we do care about right doctrine. We do care about what is true and right and we stay faithful to that. And and we allow our hearts to stay passionate for the Lord and we return back to the things that we used to do. We would study the Word of God and we would love to come to church and worship Him and lift our hands. And we, we stay unstained from the world. We don't allow lawlessness and wickedness to come into our lives. So then our love grows cold because our love for the Lord is drowned out by love of the world. Second Timothy 4 tells us, Paul tells us, of somebody who fell away. Paul, in one of his missionary journeys, he, he writes to Timothy and says this, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Don't know anything else about Demas other than what we see right here. He, he, what did Demas do? He, he fell in love with the present world. And so his love for Christ grew And John writes, not only in this revelation, but he writes in a short epistle in 1 John. He says, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. For the things that are in the world are passing away. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the question is, will we be faithful? Will we be faithful to love Christ supremely? And will we be faithful to stand for truth unwaveringly? Will we be faithful? I want to end with this. 16-year-old William Featherston. I want you to think about that for a second as we end with this. 16-year-old William Featherston wrote this hymn in 1862. It's titled, My Jesus, I Love Thee. He, he wrote these words as 16-year-old. He said, My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus is now. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus now. I'll love thee in life and I will love thee in death. And praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath. And say when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus is now. In mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. I'll sing with the glittering crown on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus tis now. Lord, we, we come before you, not as the church at Ephesus, but as the church at Living Word Church. The church at Living Word. And Lord, we ask, God, that you would help us to love you as we ought. Lord, we admit that we do not love you as we ought. We admit that our love is mixed, and that we often stray and wonder. We often allow other things to crowd out our love for you. So, Lord, we repent. We repent. Forgive us for loving other things more than we love you. Forgive us, Lord, for not loving you supremely. Number one in our life. And, God, I pray that, that you would help us to remember what you've done. That you loved us first. That you saved us and delivered us when we were lost and wanted nothing to do with you. And may that be the grounds of our returning back to the first love that we have in you. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is faithful. That we would faithfully endure. That we would faithfully proclaim. That we would faithfully love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.